From the Financial Times in London, I'm Lionel Barber, the editor, and this is FT News. Earlier this year, a former Uber software engineer set off a reaction she can hardly have anticipated when she alleged in a blog that she'd been sexually harassed by her manager and that Uber's human resources team had ignored the allegation when she reported it. Uber later fired more than 20 employees as a result of a legal probe that had looked into 215 harassment claims. That software engineer was Susan Fowler, and her decision to go public has been followed by dozens of harassment claims that have shaken up executive ranks in a host of different sectors, from the film industry to banking. The most high-profile culprit is the film producer Harvey Weinstein. We've chosen Susan Fowler as the FT's Person of the Year, and here with me to discuss why is our San Francisco correspondent, Leslie Hook, and our company's editor, Brooke Masters. Let's start with you, Leslie, in San Francisco. Just give us some of the background about Susan Fowler's role at Uber and the type of company Uber was and maybe still is, which made her move so dramatic. Certainly. Well, Susan Fowler is an engineer and a physicist. She joined Uber when she was just 24. And, you know, at the time, Uber looked like a juggernaut that was taking over the world. This was late 2015. And Uber was on a roll. It was expanding. And its engineering team was doing lots of exciting things. However, during her year at the company, Susan experienced harassment and just as worryingly, a human resources team that turned a blind eye and in fact protected the harassers. And she wrote about this after she'd left Uber. She now works for Stripe, a payments company. And she described her experiences in a very simple and direct and very brave way. And what she wrote about resonated so deeply within Uber that when the company had an all-hands meeting a few days later, there were, you know, tears. Employees were crying because so many had experienced similar things themselves. And as you mentioned earlier, her post launched a series of investigations that led to all types of changes at Uber, from governance reforms at the very highest level. Uber hired former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to conduct a report and an investigation into the governance reforms. And uh, Eric Holder said the root of the problem really lay in Uber's governance issues and the sort of out-of-control startup culture that had governed Uber for so many years. So that's rather important what you just said about the startup culture. I mean, Travis Kalalnik, the founder at Uber, is a famously hard-charging male. But Brooke, this is true about Uber, this high testosterone, if you like, culture. But that's also true of a lot of Silicon Valley startups. Absolutely. We did some follow-up work at the FT after Susan Fowler's blog post that showed that, in fact, there is a tremendous lack of women at all the startups, and the women who are there don't feel comfortable, many of them. And there is this sense that, you know, break all the rules, figure out the regulations later is the way to success. I mean, Uber was seen as the most high-profile version of this. But in general, the idea is to innovate, you have to break things. You know, you have to break eggs to make omelets, that sort of thing. And the idea that collaboration and working together and a more inclusive culture could also be a way to success was largely disregarded, except perhaps at a few companies. Airbnb might be one of the few exceptions. Brooke, the other phenomenon, of course, was the way this went viral. I mean, that's the new kind of take of 2017, 
that you'd have an individual totally unknown outside her sector and she writes a blog and it suddenly goes viral and takes off. It really does change the dynamic. For the first time, the ordinary person has a chance to change the world. We have seen a lot of criticism of social media this year for lots of reasons. Fake news, the fact that it contributes to bubbles, people hear what they want to hear. But it does also empower people when they have a story to tell. And I think not only in Susan Fowler's case, but also sort of more broadly, social media has been part of why this big fight against sexual harassment has managed to really gain traction. If you think about the January 21st march against Donald Trump's inauguration, there was this huge series of demonstrations around the country in lots and lots of cities simultaneously as a form of protest, because as you probably remember, Mr. Trump had been accused of harassment himself, and people had ignored that, and he got elected anyway. And social media was how they organized these gatherings, and it gave real sense of community to people and empowered people who might be feeling rather isolated. You had anti-Trump marches in traditionally red states and in communities where you might not have expected progressive people. Apart from Mr. Trump, of course, there was another offshoot of this story at Google, where one of the senior engineers was censured by the company for challenging the notion that women would make good engineers. Is that correct, Leslie? Well, that's uh, James Damore, a Google engineer who wrote a long essay talking about what he described as biological differences between men and women. Suffice to say, Google found it sufficiently distasteful that they did fire him over it. But I just want to circle back to what Brooke was saying about social media, because I think that has played a huge role in how these conversations have played out. Susan Fowler herself says that Twitter and social media have really empowered her, and she has 36,000 followers. And I think when we saw in October the Me Too movement of women all coming forward, you know, there were millions of women who could share stories of what had happened to them that were very, very personal. And I think there was a sort of strength in numbers. And that's part of the reason why the conversation about sexual harassment has been so different in 2017 than it has been in previous years. Brooke, can you draw a direct line between Susan Fowler and Harvey Weinstein and the sexual harassment allegations that came up against him and then led to him essentially stepping down from the company that he founded? I think it's not a completely direct line, but you can see the connection. She went public and the reaction was positive. And so when the New York Times and the New Yorker, who were both chasing the story of what Mr. Weinstein had been up to, went to women who for decades had felt silenced and unwilling to go public. I think watching what had happened clearly gave these women some sense of comfort that they would not be completely vilified if they went public. As quite differently in 2015, when someone did accuse Harvey Weinstein of misbehavior, she was completely destroyed by the New York Post. So I think you can point to Susan Fowler and say she stood for the notion that social media will support you if you stand up and speak out. And so in that way, you can say that the women who agreed to let The New York Times name them were empowered by Susan Fowler. This is important because these women alleged that they'd been raped, a very serious charge. They also said they'd been victims of multiple cases of sexual harassment. And Mr. Weinstein was represented by one of the most powerful lawyers in the country, David Boyce. 
Exactly. And it was extremely risky for these women to go public. And in fact, of course, eventually Minister Weinstein did issue a statement saying that he had done something wrong, that he was from a different era. But even then, he has consistently denied any sort of non-consensual sex, despite the fact that you know the number of women who've come forward is now in the dozens. So I, I think it is really important to think about how different this is from the way, say, Anita Hill was treated when she came forward with allegations of misbehavior by Clarence Thomas in the early 90s. Clarence Thomas being the U.S. Supreme Court nominee and now a judge on the court. I actually covered those hearings back in 1991, I think it was, in Washington. It was indeed. And in that one, she was called to testify about what Mr. Thomas had apparently said to her, or she alleged he had said to her, when they were both working together at a federal agency, she was called to testify by the Senate by an all-male panel. There were no women in the Senate at that moment. And basically, she was totally vilified and treated as some sort of horrifying harpy. And I think that, while it raised the issue of sexual harassment in a way we hadn't seen before, in some ways set the cause back because nobody wanted to be in that position. Indeed. Leslie, let's go back to what Brooke was saying about attitudes in Silicon Valley. Do you think that Susan Fowler has indeed moved the dial in terms of general awareness about sexual harassment and also just dominant male culture in Silicon Valley? Well, I think it all comes down to consequences. And what Susan Fowler showed is that there were very real consequences for Uber, very real consequences for all of Uber's senior management, and for every single employee at the company as a result of what she said. So in contrast to previous eras, like Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, when the woman who raised the allegation was often really suffered as a result, and the harasser could you know, continue on with their life. What we've seen that's really changed today is that there's real consequences for the perpetrators. In this case, in Uber's case, you know, it's also the entire system, the entire toxic culture of Uber that was the culprit here. To spell that out, Leslie, I mean, in effect, the founder chief executive, Travis Kalalik, uh, had to step down and you had a new CEO put in. I mean, Travis Kalalik is still on the board. That's right. You know, investors were already getting a little bit fed up with Uber. But when Susan's blog post came out, that was the tipping point. And I've had investors say to me that was when they realized, hey, it's time for drastic action because they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know the full extent of it. And Susan's post lifted the lid on what was going on inside. And when other women in Silicon Valley saw that Uber could be so impacted, they thought, well, hey, I should speak up. And I think that seeing the consequences and the impact is one thing that prompted a lot of women here to come forward with their stories of what happened to them in the venture capital community and in working with investors here. So, Brooke, just to sum up, if you look back on 2017, and we agree that what Susan Fowler said, did, and wrote was of profound significance in company terms, in terms of Uber, but also in terms of Silicon Valley and the repercussions thereof. Can you think of another time in the women's movement that's been as significant, which we might compare Susan Fowler to? I mean, it's hard to think of anything in the you know, sort of post-war world that's like this. I mean, you could possibly compare it to the suffragettes where women got the vote. I mean, it's hard to think of anything more profound than that. But where it really was ordinary people who no one had ever heard of really changing things. I think this is one of the most profound changes in business culture. I mean, obviously, it'll be a question of how much it sticks. But if it sticks, 
I mean, if you think of the number of very powerful men who have lost their jobs and the number of companies that have had to rethink the way they run themselves, it is very hard to think of any single social movement that has done something so quickly. And I think that's pretty extraordinary. And you have had a, a whole class, a mini generation of media leaders, TV personalities who've subsequently been fired on sexual harassment grounds. Absolutely. I mean, think about him. Matt Lauer, NBC's um, daytime host, $30 million a year man. Charlie Rose, who was sort of the darling of the liberal establishment, seen as a real senior interviewer, you know, the entire leadership of Fox News. I mean, it, it's been extraordinary. Well, my thanks to Leslie and Brooke. And don't forget to look out for our Person of the Year column, which is published today on FT.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.